Welcome back to another episode of the Soundworks Collection interview series. This is Michael Coleman, and today we are talking with sound recordist Frank Bry, who has a fantastic story about how he got started in sound effects recording work. He has many great stories about some of the, the early gear and projects he was working on. Uh, I've been following Frank's work for quite some time and have been very excited to talk with him about his process and perspective on sound effects recording in North Idaho, where he's based. Now, one of the unique things about Frank is that he's been an active member of the online community since 1998 when he started his website, TheRecordist.com, which is also where he features and sells much of his work, including sound libraries like animals, airplanes, fire, glass, guns, metal, rocks, trains, thunder, warfare, water, wind. You get the idea. He records a lot of sounds, and I was really excited to have a chance to chat with him, so I hope you enjoy. So, uh, how long have you been out in Idaho? Uh, when did you first move out there? What year was that? Uh, I moved out here in uh, 1997. Okay. And before then, you were in Seattle and then... Yeah. I, I, in the late 80s, I moved to Seattle uh, as a musician. And I was actually going to write songs and, and, and things like that. So it was quite a, quite a curve in my career um, that happened while, while I was there. Yeah, for some of us who weren't around in the 80s, I guess. Well, we were, maybe we were around, but we weren't working, I guess. What, how, right. <laughs> how would you describe being a working musician in the 80s in Seattle, which is kind of a cool time to be in Seattle? Well, you know, um, actually, it's an interesting question because I actually was in Massachusetts. I lived um, in the in the Boston area, and that's really when I was playing live. I was a bass player, and uh, so I started doing that in '81. And um, in Seattle, uh, I had mainly shifted my focus to being um, a songwriter, recording engineer. So, because prior to moving to Seattle, I had a recording studio in Western Massachusetts, and um, I found that being a musician is, you know, really wonderful if you want to make $25 a night. Sure. Um, but we always needed to record. So I ended up just gathering gear and opened a recording studio there. And that's how I got into the technical aspect. Mm -hmm. I was seemed to be more intrigued about that. So my move to Seattle was, I, I was really started to write songs and I really enjoyed that. I had a whole bunch of these big massive, you know, 16-bit digital samplers, and uh, I used to just be self-contained. Where would you, I mean, where do you go to find a, a sampler in, in those days? I mean, the, the internet was kind of not even on the horizon yet, so. Well, you know, it's really, you know, the whole uh, um, musical instrument retail business has changed, of course. You have some really big players, and um, the mom-and-pop stores are basically gone. And uh, I, we used to go to the, you know, family-run musical instrument stores, and they would, you know, sell you something. It's like, you know, it's like that you would go there to see what it was. And the manufacturers used to fly all over the country with their wares and show up at these stores and so that's kind of you actually you actually physically went and 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 checked these things out. Yeah. Um, to these places and uh I got hooked on uh emu systems samplers and uh that's my first adventure in sound effects I was recording into that. Were those loading onto like floppy disks? What was the what was the medium? It was floppy for a long time. I mean, yeah. your your base uh emulator 3 was uh a 4 megabyte memory you could bump it up to eight. yeah you could bump it up to eight you know you only had about uh 21 and a half seconds of stereo yeah i mean what was it about those emulators that i mean what what did you just dig into with them um i used to actually do uh wh what i really loved about it they had so they had um emus technology at the time was because we had such a limited memory footprint it, it, you know pitching your sounds being able to stretch sounds out over the keyboard was and have them sound um, natural of course was 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 very difficult and technically challenging given the the processors they had in those days and uh, um, and the amount of memory you had so that's you know I used to you, you spent a lot of time looping your sounds because you wanted a string section or uh, any kind of synth patch or uh, you needed to get it so it would load off a floppy or these SideQuest 44 megabyte big behemoth you know discs 
that uh, were really expensive. And then optical came in and things like that. But it was challenging to say the least, but you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I was obsessed. <laughs> How savvy were you with MIDI at that time? Um, I was fairly savvy. Um, I'm really not that technical. Uh, I know a lot of, of friends of mine are, are way more technical. Um, you know, uh, I had to learn a lot because I had multiple Lindrum machines and I had a MIDI router and you had to make sure everything worked. And it was, for me, just making sure your channels were straight and you didn't have any bad cables, things like that. But in terms of what technically was going on, I mean, that's, I was, I was more into the creative side and just hooking these things up. Yeah, so when you were in Seattle there, I guess, who did you connect up with? What was, uh, what was the work that was going on that you were doing there? Well, what happened was, is I was a big fan of the Emulator 3, and I brought mine out. It was the one thing I kept with me. So I hauled it out to Seattle in the back of my uh, Volkswagen, and I went to the local music store told them what I had and I just moved here and they actually put me in touch with a bunch of other guys who had them and they were not cheap so the 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 people who were using them were in writing music for advertising and jingles and radio and post production um I was one of the rare people who was a musician who had one um you know save your quarters so and they add up, uh, and I, my name got around. I started calling these people because we were always on this quest for getting sounds. And I had a bunch of sounds, and they had a bunch of sounds, and we would get together and listen to what we had and uh, get to know each other. And one of them uh, asked me, do you do sound design and I had never done it before and I said yep I can do that <laughs> well show up show up Monday uh, you, you know at Bad Animal Seattle I got a room there and we're working on the Goodwill games and uh, we can hook our emulators together and because back then people weren't really people were using tape but it was all MIDI they used performer and they used you know, or vision and hooked their emulators up and in a timeline they just add their sound effects which would play virtually Mm -hmm. You know, that's how we did it Yeah. Um, back then. It's not like you load a Pro Tools session right. So now and throw things on a timeline. You basically worked with MIDI events triggering sound effects synced to a uh, uh, tape machine. I mean, we all have those kind of moments when when we got, got it started. What, what do you still appreciate and remember about those days that you relate to even today maybe? For me, yeah, the the excitement. I mean, I'm like a I'm like a, a kid in the candy shop when it comes to sounds. So, yeah. and then meeting other people who sort of had that same vibration as you. They were really into mm -hmm. sounds, and they were really in the. Everybody I met was basically a musician, who was getting into uh, the jingle business or ads or, or or things like that. And when you meet these people, you you kind of relate to them on the on that same, you know level of of oh I just love you know something that sounds good and that musically is good you know I just love that so um I hope I answered your question right I wasn't sure yeah, yeah. no no absolutely <laughs> you know? uh, I guess how long did that did the emulator designing scene go for because I mean at, at a certain point you started getting into the early 90s and things started going digital right yes what happened was I emu got wind of what i was doing in seattle so they asked me if i wanted to become an emulator dealer and uh and Nat naturally naturally they want to take your creativity and sell it um pretty much i mean i was pretty good at i i didn't know anything about retail or selling but i was really passionate about about the unit and what you could do so um I, they kind of said, okay, well, you know, you can sell these things. So I sold a few, but what, what really happened was um, I met some people who were making records up there in Seattle, um, not, not the, the grunge scene. Um, um, that was happening at the time in, in, in 1991, 92, 93. I got into engineering records. 
And uh, so I switched from that. I was still doing sound design, um, but I got kind of moved in the 90s to engineering records for people. And I, I had my Sigma, I had my little Mac Plus with mm-hmm. Performer and my Emu, and we could sync to 24 track. We'd go into the studio and, and um, work that way. People would hire me because I had the emulator and I could, I could sequence for them, but I was also a recording engineer. So uh, I made quite a few records with, with some artists that were from Seattle or who had relocated there. Yeah, and I, just from looking up on some stuff on you, I mean, there was this time when you were working under the Star Wave Corporation too, right? Well, that was the, <clears throat> that was the paradigm <laughs> shift. That was the inner... Yeah, that, was, that happened right during that making the record scene was after that, uh, I had met someone because I did some synthesizer programming for Emu and Waldorf Electronics. I met someone who was referred to me by the by I can't remember which company uh, to do some programming for them, and and he was uh, audio director at Starwave. So he had brought me on board as their senior sound designer, and that was '94. And that was when everything changed. What was like the goal of Starwave? What were they known for? Because this is something that I guess it was funded by Paul was, Allen from Microsoft. Yes, it was funded by Paul Allen. Um, the The goal was to do interactive CD-ROMs, and okay. that they started doing stuff with the Muppets and Clint Eastwood and Sting and uh, P- Peter Gabriel, and then they got into when the internet was really happening um yeah uh netscape 1.0 had just come out so so we were there doing the audio for the cd-roms and they shifted to uh creating websites they had i mean they've they've and uh the technology the people who were the behind the technology of starwave um were were very smart and a lot of their technologies i hear are still integral today what they developed there uh, but we were in the entertainment division so we would do the audio for their web we ended up doing their audio for the websites and they would I mean they developed NBA.com NASCAR.com NHL.com I mean they they were involved because no one did that really if I mean if you were a broadcaster and you wanted to have your website you called them and they did the backbone and all the content and whatever what were the the, like, the quality of the files that you were able to post online to use? What, what were those formats? Oh, it was all it was all eight bit twenty two k. Yeah, you know, I mean, when you when when the see, we would hand off the sound files to the video department, and they would render it. Oh, good. And they would try to make it as small as possible. And we had multiple T one lines at Starwave. We were really lucky, but most people we had they had just gone to um, fifty six probably. Yes. Yes, and uh, so these things were very efficient. And but I learned a lot about how to make your audio sound good um, with, with with a smaller yes yeah. yes. And uh, MP3 was just you know was 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 there it was starting to happen. We used to do MP3 files um, also. I remember those days. I, mean, I I actually I remember even on some AOL message boards if people can remember that and. There were files that you could download and dog barks and door slams and all the typical stuff that we have today, but it was just like, even that was like almost like ringtone quality. It was very primitive, but you know, very new, I guess, because before you'd have to go to a, I don't know, a floppy disk or, or records. I'm not even sure where you'd find sound effects. <laughs> it, they were they they were LP for many many years. They started yeah. tape and then LP and then you know the, the CD was was already um, at that point the CD uh, by '94 it had been ten years. Right. So yeah. Um, but they were very expensive to produce. I used to produce CD-ROMs of sounds, and um, it was a nightmare. It was you know ma- spend years making your product and then wait months and months and months and get your artwork and your DVD and I mean things are are way different I mean I used to fiz- I used to have inventory you know and I used to have to deal with international shipping and oh my god exports <laughs> and, and then I, I would have I would I would be a distributor for other things and uh, 
Um, you sa- it sounds like the life of like John Cusack in uh, High Fidelity. Yes. Well, I, I eventually got to the point in the '90s where I, you know, I didn't have the resources to sell this stuff, so I would wholesale my sound effects that I would I would record. Um, I mean, there were uh, a few periods where I was so broke that all I could do was run around with my DAT machine and 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 record sounds. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I would have gone crazy if I couldn't get out and record. So I just amassed this huge catalog of stuff. And instead of dealing with the whole mechanics of in, in, doing it myself, I would wholesale it to the big CD library companies. They would, they would, re, they would re-release it. And that's how, um, um, I kind of got known as, as a sound recordist. Awesome. So I guess you stayed in Seattle for a fair amount of time and then you you made this move to North Idaho. Yes, we uh, Starwave was um, purchased and went, went public. Became a few other companies uh, and was bought by Disney. And then they let us go. And I said, "This is a good time to do my own thing." And that's when I get into games because that Starwave we did one online video game, and the people that were there, one of them went and worked for another company uh, and ca- called me in 96 and said, working at this company, we're doing this game called Total Annihilation. Do you want to do, you want to do the sound effects? And that was, my, that was my real entry into video game sound design. Right, I mean, how much time did you have to work on that title? What was the kind of the production cycle like for that? Three months. <laughs> to <laughs> record, edit, and get it programmed? Yes, I uh, did. I didn't do the program. I just I did all the sound design, all the sound effects, all the all the individual assets, and I did them. I did them all on my emulator, and I had a four-channel Pro Tools rig, and I would re-record my sounds back in, mix them down, and send them a file. And I had. Oh my gosh! I, I now I'm just pulling this up online. I'm looking at. It. I definitely remember playing this, and what is it? It says '97. It came out so. Yep. That was a pretty that was a pretty big title, I imagine. Uh, it it did really well because the the if you're a strategy gamer, uh, it it was it was groundbreaking. It was revolutionary uh, what they, they did in terms of the whole strategy end. Um, and they were a small developer, and they they did really well. And they ended up going on to do quite a few more titles like Dungeon Siege and Supreme Commander, and and uh, I ended up working on all those titles also. Yeah. So when you when you got some of these tiles under your belt, you're now in Idaho and you're you're a little more. It's different than Seattle, obviously. So what were your thoughts about the type of work that you wanted to pursue? You obviously you wanted to record more, and Idaho is a pretty good place to be. Yes, I continued recording this whole time. I'm recording sounds. I mean, I ever I never stopped. Um, uh, but the the video game work financially supported me buying the gear and going to record and and the schedules were you'd work for a while and then you'd have some time and then you'd work. I got so busy after I moved to Idaho that I was actually overlapping three or four titles. Oh wow! Okay. And and, and having a couple subcontractors. It was it was a wild time and this was right. It's about two thousand two thousand one two thousand two okay. two thousand three. Yep. And Things were that there was a there was a lot of contracting at that point for 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 audio. Uh, it's all a cycle. So I just happened to be at that point where, when I came to Idaho, I had contracts for three titles. <clears throat> so I didn't come here like and say, "Well, what am I going to do here? I'm going to have to, you know." Live live in a grass hut in the mountains. Where is everybody? Where is all, where are all my, my audio friends? Yeah. So that was kind of an adjustment, you, you know, moving uh, to the country and, you know, but Seattle's not that far away. It's half a day's drive, but internet was there. So you felt more, con- you felt more connected. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. What is it like to be in Idaho and then have to deliver sounds? Cause I guess, what do you, do you slow, uh, throw a CD in the mail and, and that's enough. That works for most people, or internet was at a point where you could upload all your internet, stuff. Internet was at a point where you could you. It would take some time. It's not something like you sat there and watched. It's you just did it. The the key, I guess, to efficiency, I found out was have as many computers as you can. 
because you can have one one computer you work on for audio, one that you do your accounting and other things, and then you have like one machine, which is usually an older machine that's depreciated, and you're kind of like, well, you don't know what to do with it. So, I would just that would be my upload machine, and you know, you would just let it sit there and do its thing while you continued, you know, multitasking. I learned to multitask, which was was really crazy. You were ahead of the curve for all, all, all of everything that was yet to come with technology. Probably, I I did start my website at that time too. That was actually in '98. I started. I started the recordist.com. And what did you find in terms of the online community scene then? Was there an active community or was it very much so in the beginning? It was it was it was very sparse. There were there were uh a few people uh around and there, there were bulletin boards. So you could actually go on these things and there were groups, you know, Yahoo groups, you could go on there. You could you could get information from people, but you know, we used a landline most of the time. We just, you call and you talk to people. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, remember that? I do. I still do that. I, I, I still just get on the phone just to yap. Yeah. You know, it's, it's still a task we all need to remember how to properly use to talk. It's really healthy as a human being, actually, to, to talk to people. I was just thinking of, you know, at the time, like, I'm not even sure what you, it was in, in the mid to late 90s, but I mean, my first introduction was I was actually using it, but my dad, we had Atari STs growing up. And so they had basically like this, you know, BBS, these bulletin board systems. And uh, like, I was just like, it wasn't something that I thought about quite yet that like, oh, this is going to mean something in the future. It probably wasn't until AOL and some of these other dial up services started coming on board that you could chat you know or instant message with people and that was a whole nother mindset yeah it was definitely a whole nother mindset i remember the bulletin board days and they were when i was at Starwave, they were still very active yeah and being at that company um i was you know none of this stuff was really secret but i was involved in a lot of the stuff that was going to be coming i mean you know it's it was really strange you know we, we we would talk about stuff and i'm like really that's going to happen, and okay, well, get ready for it. Uh, yeah. So I, I, my mind was blown when I went into work one day, and I had done. I saw something on television that the X-Files dot com was like the largest website in the world at the time, and it was after shortly after that shut down by by the studio because there was all this stuff going on. But you could go and you could get everything on the X-Files, and that's what people did. It's like you go on, the internet was there for you to go read about and get more than just watching television. And I would just spend hours uh, off the clock. Right? Yeah, of course. You know, um, just finding stuff because I used to love that show. So the, so I saw this coming and, I'm, and they were involved in a lot of that entertainment business. So, right. And I knew online gaming was was coming too because I was involved in one of the very first ones. How much competition was there in I mean, by their sound recordists because I guess there were traditional obvious post-production studios that hasn't really changed that much. It's just the gears kind of you know swapped out and whatnot and did you feel like oh like I need you obviously had a, an intuition in 98 to have a presence online and I mean what did that how has that paid off for you now? I was the as far as I know, people tell me I was one of the first just sound effects only recordists in Seattle, and that's how I got known. Is there is a sound recordist here? The 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 competition was not there. There were a whole bunch of people who were doing production audio. They would go out with the boom mic and they record the dialogue, and then they would be asked to record some wild sound effects from the session. So there were a whole bunch of sound recordists out there. But they were mainly in in the production end, where they were out there with the film crew, and but there weren't many people. There was there was me. I, I would get a call like you know, go record the hydroplane races this weekend. We'll pay you, and we'll use the sounds because they needed them for their advertising. And so I would go out and do that. I would just go hang out and record. So, but I was one of the very few doing that. At the time, I was probably the only one uh, for for a while. Just 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 sound effects. Uh, so, uh, what do you contribute this fascination with sound? Like, 
even going back to when you were growing up as a child, who who gave you the bug? How did how did it get so deep into your system? I heard that when I was a very very small child that I was utterly terrified of loud noises, and so since I have learned that, when I when I learned that, I realized that I'm I might be just hypersensitive to sound, and I do have that. I mean, I have. Um, I'm very easily loud sounds really get me. It's I have to block my ears, whether it's the coffee grinder or or uh, walking down the city street and and the bus driving by you resets their air brakes and you get this huge air hiss. I mean those things blow my mind. I mean I actually um, cringe. I mean they actually hurt me in a way. So I think I was just it's the way it makes me feel, whether it's good, bad, you know joyful, terrified. I was always fascinated with that. That's why I like the bass, because the bass used to vibrate my body. <laughs> you could feel it, right? Yeah, I could feel it, that it had, had some sort of power. It had this, this, this emotional power to it. And that's why I think I really love what I do. That's the main effect, the emotional effect that it has on me. Hmm. Now that, um, I guess, you have been doing work now for a, you know a fair amount of time and i mean and people's ears do get trained over time and and you can start to really use them in ways that we probably weren't even aware what have you found for yourself that you've been very you know acutely aware of over the years and in, in terms of how you can use your ears and in terms of the work that you do since it is you know very critical listening i would say a lot of my sound libraries are a result of me just, I'm always listening. I hear something. And uh, I've trained myself to hear things very far away. I hear things, my family goes, you heard that? I said, you hear that? And I'm like, what? <laughs> sure. Um, even at 51, I can still, I have very sensitive hearing. And um, take care of your ears, by the way. Yeah. All you people who are twenty years younger, and uh, it's uh, <laughs> they are your they are you if you're in sound. And uh, I was lucky enough that I uh, took care of my ears really well, so they're still pretty sensitive even at, at this point in my life. I I hear things, and if if it if it sounds interesting or makes me feel a certain way, um, I'll go record it. I'll try to re I'll try to recreate it, which is really tough because sometimes something happens and you try to re recreate it and it doesn't. Well, that's what I want to ask you. I mean, for this many years of doing what you've been doing of recording sound effects and whatnot, what is it that when you wake up and what am I going to do today? Everyone has that feeling. What is it? How how do you plan out what you want to be working on? Because you know, just following you online, it's like wait. There's another storm coming through. Wait, how, how many storms, thunderstorms can I record or how many guns can I record? It just seems it might get tiring after a while, but that doesn't seem to be the case with you. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. Th thunderstorms are the, the greatest, you know, um, joy for me uh, because you never know what you're going to get. They severely inter interrupt my business day if I have a business day or if I have, if I have to get something done. Yeah, because I just can't resist. I mean, I have to, <laughs> and I have to wait, and I have to make sure that I have to look at which way the storm's coming from, so the microphone is in the right place, and I can have to be on this side of the house or that side of the house, or, or, so they can they can really put a dent in your day, and the next thing you know, your day is over, and you do anything but get one lightning strike or something that's even mediocre. So. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a really tough call. I, I get calls to record guns. I have friends who say, you know, we're going out to do this here. You want to come? And it's, I have an hour to get ready. It's so, I, I usually never know what I'm going to do, um, you know, for the most part. I, I try to plan. I try to plan. But uh, sometimes, you know, it just happens. Then you have to take advantage of, of something that comes up. What's the unique aspect of being in Idaho? Because I know a lot of times when, you know, the guys in Hollywood, they have to go out to the desert. They have to go out to these quiet places, and yet you probably walk out your front door and you're there. Sometimes. Okay. It's changing here. Since I've moved here, it's, got, it's much noisier. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I live fairly close to this big lake, and it's a resort town. So in the summertime, you hear all the motorboats, and there's more Learjets flying in and out, and there's more helicopters, and and it's 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 not like being in the city or living in Seattle. We don't have that constant um, that background noise all the time. So uh, we get a lot of trains. I mean, all the east-west trains and the northern part of the country run through here. So, so you have to work around the trains unless they're working on the tracks and it's quiet all day. But uh, we have a different, it's a, it's different here. You know, I, I've, I've recorded in the desert um, before and that's a whole different sound down there. We have, it's, it's, we up here, there's something <clears throat> magical about here with, with our mountains being at, 7,000 feet and lots of fir trees and we have wide open spaces. We have cliffs. We have um, all this, this, these surfaces or this, this background that this, these uh, sound waves can bounce off of. And uh, I, this is a place I go to record guns in the middle of this 400 acre field where you shoot the gun and all you hear is the bullet coming out. You don't even hear, there's no echo at all, which is, <clears throat> which is really strange. So, and then uh, when you hear thunder come in, it's not, it's not really a sharp thunder. It's a really deep rolling vibrational thunder. Uh, I've recorded some sharp ones that have been close by, but uh, it's, very, it's, it's very different here. It's magical to me in, in, in a sense. It's, it's, I actually love it. How much gear do you, <laughs> when you go out for a record, what, what is your typical quantity range of you know stuff that you always have on you and what what is that that it really depends on what i'm going to do and i keep a portable recorder in my car all the time and i also have another one set up near the sliding door in case i need to run outside i mean this is like you might as well have a fire four alarm fire and a pole yeah fire pole i mean it's yeah it's everything's usually all ready to go so if i get a call or or I'm planning something. Um, typically, it's it's just a, a lot of times it's just a single stereo recorder and my uh, uh, stereo Sennheiser set. Uh, when I do guns, I bring out multitudes of recorders and lots of mics, and um, I do it all myself pretty much too. So it's it's I have to be pretty organized and have a fairly efficient system. I don't. I don't have any assistance or anything. I have to set everything up. Uh, a lot of times I even do all the shooting, too. Oh, wow. R- very much a one-man band. Uh, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really hard. Yeah. Sometimes to, to, when you do everything. So I, I have people come with me on occasion. I'll have someone come run the video or help me string cables. And my shooter will help me pack up and set up and stuff. So I try to keep it small. What are some of the... I mean, besides the guns and thunders, and because you have so many libraries on your website, what are some of the other ones that stand out to you that you've you're really proud of that you've you've captured over the years? Oh, uh, the really organic natural libraries I have my my ice library uh, that was uh, uh, really crazy to record. Uh, recording in the cold is always interesting. Um, the uh, sounds of um my the rocks and different things um one of my personal favorites is my foliage library which is a really strange library because it's just the sounds that leaves and, and brush and sticks and grass make um so that's one of my personal uh, favorite new age meditational libraries just to listen to the wind going through through fir trees or or maple leaf trees, and, the, and it rustles at the different times of the seasons. Because we have some pretty wild windstorms here. I mean, how, how do you feel about just that relationship now that you're at a place where you're not working on? I mean, majority of the stuff you are recording it with with the intent to then obviously sell it and, and put it out there. Do you have this kind of like I don't know relationship that you, you're not so concerned about retaining it just for yourself and your own personal library? Um, you know, I pretty much don't do that. I don't, you know, they, it's, I need to think about this one because this is, it's really, really interesting because I used to feel that way. I used to be, used to feel that, you know, this is such a great sound. This is such a great sound. But if you only keep it for yourself, um, 
then, I mean, to me, it's it's okay. But what's the point? Um, I, I I love to to share, I guess, and they make it all over the world. You know, they these sounds travel. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing about this type of work is that it, it is very much so a collaborative type of work, and it can also be a very singular experience. And, you know, wh where and how you go about your work is totally up to you and the projects you're working on. I, f I find that, you know, it, it's interesting when you get, you know, a few sound people in a room and you start working together, what actually comes out of it. And I think that's obviously the, you know, the kind of the, the great outcome and fruit of, people working together yes it is and when i was in video games i uh, had a few people that i worked with and that that collaborative effort always help, helps you grow you know you're, you're shown things or you're the outcome of things that you you might not have never have thought of um it's the mind meld that is really important and i actually feel that way about my sounds um lately my, my libraries have been based upon input from the the people that use my sounds, um, I get emails and, and telephone calls, and and uh, um, they're they they tell me you know uh, be really nice to have a whole set of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, you know. You know? <laughs> so I do that secretly. I don't I don't talk about it with people until I'm ready to you know let people know what's coming. More more cowbell, just. As much cowbell as possible. Yeah, <laughs> in all of my stuff. So I've gotten I've gotten some interesting things. I actually have a couple library sets I'm working on um, that are completely not what I've been doing lately. Uh huh. So, uh, I have some that I'm working on, and uh, I get lots of requests for guns recorded very far away, like okay. really, like really far away. Where I think even if you're in the desert, it's physically impossible. What's the application? Do you think for that? Why, why do they want that? The video game sound designers like it because they use it for um, that that other perspective. So it's a notification that you're being attacked by something, you know, far away. Gives you a sense of how close they are. I mean, they use these as tactical cues for the for for, for the player. Um, there's also they're great for the amount of surround work that people are doing, and you can use them in such a fashion that it's just beyond, oh, that's a distant gunshot. You can use it as an effect. You can use it as a, a surround filler. You can use it as a layer. And here, it's really interesting. The sound travels v very differently. It's really heavy and lower mid-range. It's not like it comes back at you really sharp. It's really quite soothing. And and I live in in gun country where you you hear them all the time. Now everybody's practicing or or you know target plinking or something, and uh, or they're at the gun club down the street doing their skeet shooting. So I just wander around and and um, try to do stuff. I've actually done my own recording of stuff really far away. So I mean we're talking yeah we're we're talking three four hundred meters, which is really tough because you need to find a place where you can do that where. There's not a lot of other noises going on. So, did you did you ever find that people are wanting? I mean, I've seen a few recordists, a few, not that many, really, doing surround recordings and keeping it in a, you know, like a five or seven one type of setup or in mind. Did you ever get into that? No, I haven't got into that. Um, I'm not rigged for that. I know people who who are. I've talked to some people. It's really kind of a subjective thing. I think. I have just heard that a lot of sound designers, they, they like that idea, but they would rather work with placing their sounds in the field. So when you sit there in a room, I have a surround here, and um, I, I record some things that I can place in surround. Uh, and I've also played back some surround files that I have that I haven't recorded that other people have done. And it's really wonderful while you're sitting there I don't have the personal experience of how that would work in a post-production library. So that's that's all I can tell you is I don't know how – I've never done that. So I've always created my sound backgrounds from stereo files or a bunch of mono files. So, I, you know, it's interesting. that There, there seem to be a lot of libraries coming out with 
surround. So I think it'd be really interesting to find out what how how people really feel about it because surround is wonderful. It's beautiful and um, my as a sound designer and 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 as a business model, I I, I really walk a strange place of okay this is a sound okay is this actually going to work in a library or it's it's weird when you get into sound libraries because you want to do things that people are going to use and but you also want to do things that um that sound really cool when you're sitting there in the room with it but in terms of how it's applied um it'd be interesting to find out people's views is to ask people who do it every day like who actually work and mix these things, probably talk to mixers and, you know, find out, you know, how do they like their stuff? I mean, do you, do you, do you want to get an ocean background that is recorded with a surround microphone stuck out there? Or would you rather create something with a whole bunch of sounds that you either recorded at one place or have gathered together from a bunch of different sources? I don't really know the answer to that question. I don't, yeah, I mean, it almost seems like there's been a kind of a conscious decision in terms of the do's and don'ts, and like you know, obviously there might there has to be some understanding that there's a reason why we're all doing this the way we are because it's it might be working, you know, it, it's not broken necessarily, or it's not a, an aesthetic that is necessary for you know well, publication. Yes, because we, when they're when these sound designers and mixers are creating the sound for the movie, they're they're trying to convey the director's, you know, vision of the emotional impact or the entertainment value of what you're seeing on screen. So that's what they're doing. I mean, they're actually creating this, this, this vibration. I'm not sure about how you go about doing that with surround files or a bunch of mono files or a bunch of stereo files. I don't know. I haven't really gotten into the whole surround thing. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a big part of, I think, where I wanted to, you know, ask you about, which is kind of the future, since you've had, a, you know, an involvement, definitely online and obviously in your own craft. I mean, have you found that in terms of I guess, what people are calling now immersive sound, immersive audio, which is like, you know, people calling things HD. You know, it's like, well, it's it's always been in surround. It's always been, but now they're calling it, I guess, this immersive sound. What are you finding, or or what are your thoughts on, you know, what is where things are going trends now, does it really change your perspective of how you do your work or do you keep moving forward how you've always been working? Yeah, it's it's, it's really kind of a marketing thing. I mean, but what, what it what it did was it differentiated for me, it differentiated my C D quality stuff from my newer stuff. That's why I use the H D. I mean, can you can you uh go back and forth between the two uh, you know, file for uh, bit rates and whatnot, and they still work together, or is it pretty audible in terms of the jump between the two? It's pretty audible. Uh, I think it's fairly audible with the microphones that go beyond uh, 20K. I think with it's really the 24 bit thing that really is the is the big kicker in this it's you know 48 96 um 96 is great for uh pitch shifting and just you know that many samples per second is really wonderful um but a great sound recorded at 2448 is still a great sound so you know it, it's really it's really a strange thing how this is all marketing and i i used it as a, okay this is my cd quality stuff that i recorded to dat in the night. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, and then in in 1998, I got you know uh, started getting into 24-bit 48 recording, and then I said, "Well, let's go to 96." I so, mean, this is almost like a warning. Like the noise floor and compression on these recordings was the best we had. Just enjoyed what what there is, you know. <laughs> yes, I mean it's it's the future. Wow, I. I honestly don't know. I know surround is really big, and um, I have some um, some friends and associates who release quad libraries, and the, and that seems quad seems more viable than you know five point one as a sound library. Yeah, there, there's some stuff I, I just come across of some like I mean we're talking like crazy you know like Zappa recordings that were done 
in in quad and some mm-hmm. other in um uh was it isotomita the synthesizer guy from japan and and some of the stuff that's like this stuff has been around for a while this is not like a new thing and and yet it's like fashion it comes around every you know whatever 20 30 years and we're going to try to repackage it again uh, with a new name. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, the interesting that I find is, you know, with quad recordings or six-channel 5.1 recordings or eight-channel 7.1 recordings is for for us, for a sound recordist and, and, a, and a sound effects provider like myself, we're not providing like a finished track for somebody. We're providing them a, you know, it's like it's like a piece of, you go like stock art or or something like that i don't stock sound effects i don't consider this latest trend in the last five years of having these what we call independent or boutique um, i kind of wish we dropped the independent because it <laughs> yeah. makes it sound like independent record labels and, you it's know. so hip it's different it's yeah it's, i think the independent yeah. thing i think it's time for that to go boutique is better or just sound providers i mean we're we're really all of us are really no different than any of what we call the big boys or the the industrialized or stock who've been entrenched for many years um you know we're still sound recorders recording sound effects so i don't consider myself independent i kind of actually consider myself just the recordist (laughs) just drop the yeah it's like you know i'm not into who am i independent from yeah. I mean, does, does that mean that there's somebody who's like, it's like you know, major record label, independent label. Yeah. You know? And the scary thing is that I remember the independent label sub pop when, because I was in Seattle during that time when it came out, well, they ended up becoming not an independent label anymore. So because of that, because of that ban. So, you know, it's kind of like, oh, well, I mean, I just think we're all people and we're all sound recordists and we're all, um, just doing our thing. I mean, how do, what's the fine line there in terms of, I mean, obviously you are one person and it's not an operation. You don't have a, you know, a full staff that's working under you and your direction. And No, it's just me. Yeah, it's just you. And I'm sure that's going to probably continue just because of that's how you've always worked and, you know, that that's what works for you. What, what do you feel like, you know, as we all try to think, some you know some of us I imagine try to think oh have some plan or you know what we're gonna do in the future. What is there a plan? Is it is it good enough just to do what you've been doing and that is gonna keep you creatively energized and? I know. saw I, I I've I've been involved in and seen some of the biggest plans fail. Yeah, it's awful. So I'm not a big planner. Um, I I try to structure some things but in terms of planning what i'm going to do next year um it's i mean it's great to forecast and see how your business model and i mean i, I have no idea what this, this business model will be next year i'm just going to continue to go out and record sounds that make me feel good and also that i think based on what clients have told me and customers and stuff try to give them more of of, of what they're desiring and try to fit that into what I'm doing. I mean, I've had some great ideas from people, and um, I'm going to do it, and I have been doing it. But in terms of like planning, I mean, I I have a plan in terms of I know what library I'm going to release next. But in terms of that, that's about as far as I have. <laughs> yeah. I haven't even had breakfast yet. Yeah, let, let me let like, me get out, let me get out of bed, have my coffee before we think about my future. Yeah, so I I mean it's important to, to to definitely plan some things, and of course this whole boutique sound library thing, uh, we've seen the the number of people doing it grow, uh, just crazy. You know, it's pretty incredible to to see all these great sounds coming out, and and people really giving it a really good shot and putting their own passion and their own vibration into doing something that they can make a living and maybe raise some kids and support a family. And, but it's a lot of work. I mean, I know people who have big infrastructure, you know, and uh, hire things out, but I mean, there's a lot of it is do it yourself. I mean, I do everything. I do my website, I do my videos, I do all my audios and audio uh, stuff. And it's a lot of work. Uh, 
but it is really rewarding if you if you enjoy it and something comes of it and other people like it it's really rewarding because you get you get you make a connection with other people yes so true i mean that that's going back to obviously what i think you're uh, expressing earlier in terms of the people i mean i'm sure those connections that you met early on you still are in contact with right yes and i've had people i've known for 30 years who i still talk to who 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 use my stuff and release stuff and um, it's just wonderful that we're all still in touch. And, uh, so, um, that's, I, I mean, I really love that. I get out of town once a year, I go to the GDC game conference and that's about it for me, you know, and that's about the, uh, the people and it's crazy fun because I, people actually put a face on that cartoon character I have on my website. <laughs> oh, you mean you don't look like that? That's not how you have I to actually look. do. I used to have a oh. I used to have a ponytail. I can probably chop that off in Photoshop, but I leave it on because it's just that's the original. <laughs> uh, you're still you're still living in that whenever that was time. Well, it's really funny. That's uh, back at Starwave. One of the one of the um, artists there did that for me, and uh, I told him I said, you know, I love recording the sounds of aircraft. I said, can you kind of do this thing of me flying through the air after this jet? Yeah, and that's kind of it. I'm jumping through the air trying to trying to record an airplane, and uh, he gave me, you know, big hair and <laughs> funny looking sneakers. But you know, the gear looks good. It's still working. It's still the gear looks out. good. Yeah. So, <laughs> but yeah, people end up, you know, they 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 see me and they meet me, and they're like, oh, you know, you're you're the one who does this. It's finally, you know, nice to meet you as a person. And, uh, it's it's a it's a cherished four days every March. Oh, so cool. And then I guess obviously for those that can't meet you in person, therecordist.com is a great place to check out your work, the place. Pretty much. That's it. Or Facebook. Um, I usually put out stuff. You can really see what I'm up to there. Um, and, uh, and plus you can always just call me. So cool. Well, Frank, thank you so much for talking. And obviously anyone who's listening who wants to get in touch with Frank, go, go to therecordist.com and say hi and and uh, thank you so much for all these great stories. Well, thanks for letting me yap. And uh, it's always a pleasure to talk with, with people about this and sound in general. So now I guess it's time for breakfast. Let's go have some breakfast. <laughs>